Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of the universe. We thank you that your Son is the King of the universe. We thank you that he is unrivaled in all the earth. We thank you and we praise you that all who do not bow to him in this life will bow in the next. We thank you that he bends nations and civilizations to his will. We thank you that all that has breath either has or will pay homage to the Son. We pray that you grant us power by your Spirit in this time as we consider these things from your Word and the effect that they are to have in your people. We pray that saints would be sanctified and that sinners who do not know you would come to know you even today by the power of your word and your spirit and your gospel. We praise you and we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin today with a question for you who are a little bit more politically in the know, and don't worry, we're not going to do this the entire time, okay? This is just to establish a base which is relevant to our study. Question is this, what deity is at the center of the communist system? Now with this there is a technical answer and there is a correct answer. And the technical answer is that there is no deity at the center of the communist system because it is fundamentally atheistic. The correct answer though is the state. The government is the god at the center of the communist system and whatever head of state is atop the government in a given country. Now, they would, of course, say that Mao was not considered to be a god, nor Stalin, nor Castro. Now, it's just that they wielded absolute power to control every aspect of their citizens' lives according to a set of precepts and doctrines comprising their systematic theology, complete with their own anthropology, which is to say doctrine of man, which is that man is fundamentally good, but this external system of capitalism imposes upon him greed that is not intrinsic to him. They also have their own soteriology, which is doctrine of salvation, which is the communist system itself. And they have their own eschatology or, you know, end times, future events. And that is that if communism is instated and preserved, uh, there will be a permanent utopia. 
because all that caused men to sin has been taken off of the table and we are now free, according to them, uh, from any kind of iniquity whatsoever. Now, of course, and unfortunately, what we Americans previously relegated to the Führers or the Fathers of Communist or Socialist nations of the past and present can now also be accredited to our own Uncle Sam. The New Deal, he graduated from an uncle and became a father, and with COVID lockdowns, he graduated again and became a god to our fellow citizens, but he did not become so to us, because for us, Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3 still stands, even in 2024 America. God says there, of course, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the clarity of that is obvious, and so should be the right application of it to our politics. But the cult of statism is a very clever liar, which means that instead of outright denying Christ, it just grossly misapplies what is right about Christianity. And so where other idols fail, it entices Christians and Christ professors and succeeds. Because first of all, we do actually need the state. That is, organized government. Thus saith the Lord, in fact. And the Lord saith this because it, second, is a God-given essential good. And this fact was established from this pulpit once more very recently, as it has been many times in the past. And thirdly, and further complicating things, is the fact that rebelling against a government when unnecessary actually does make you a bad Christian. And the fourth and final cause that I will raise is that most of us, most of us generally, I'm not saying in this church, but most of us evangelicals are complete cowards anyhow. So acquiescence to evil by way of a misinterpretation of key passages of Scripture is all the out we were ever going to need. So Satan uses all these factors and more to conflate and to confuse, and because of this very effective deception, we much more easily avoid the whorehouses than we do avoid becoming Caesar's whores in the name of being good citizens and good Christians. And because of all of this, I am very grateful for the testimony of the saints in the book of Acts. Whether it was the geographically limited government of the Sanhedrin or the great global empire of Rome, they knew where the lines were. They knew when to submit, they knew when to resist, and they knew how to resist. And sometimes that meant charging into the center of the town and preaching the gospel. In fact, it meant that in every town. Sometimes it also meant hiding after the fact. Sometimes it meant strategic withdrawal. And other times still it meant interposing on behalf of other Christians as they fled persecution, and we will see this today. And applying their example to us is hardly something too complex to do with certainty, there is not a problem here with clarity. There is, however, a great problem with cowardice. And because this is true, before we embark into this text and see how to respond to a government that claims to be a god, I'll go no further before I remind you all of this from your king, the king of kings. Revelation 21, 6 through 8. He, King Jesus, said to me, me being John, I am the Alpha, and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
but for the cowardly. But for the cowardly. That's the first sin in a list of egregious sins, as you will see. That's how he begins. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I have consistently acknowledged with respect to churches varying responses to governmental overreach in 2020 that in the fog of war that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the lockdowns, decisions were made by pastors and churches that were not good, but that in some instances at least were caused by ignorance and not a lack of godly character. However, moving forward, and especially for all of us in this church, and especially in light of this study through Acts, if we fold in the face of outright tyranny in the future, it cannot be chalked up to the confusion that leads to bad decisions, but rather the cowardice that, according to our Lord, leads to hell. So for the sake of your eternal souls, I hope you remember this. The next time Caesar attempts to take all of what rightly belongs to God, because surely he will, including whether or not we can even meet together as believers and what we can preach from our pulpits. So now with that foundation, let us look to the text. I will read all of Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, together with you, and I will then expound and apply from there. Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is that Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And that, of course, is where we stopped last week, but moving into Verse 5, but the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace and forming a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the assembly, and when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they disturbed the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the bond from Jason and the others, they released them. The first thing that I want to note with you is who has been converted here through Paul's dialogue or the dialegomai of verse 2. Do that. Uh, engagement, that reasoning from the Scriptures. And this is seen in verse 4, and we will consider these two or maybe three, depending upon how you parse it, groups, and we will do this individually beginning uh, with the beginning of verse 4 where we have the first group. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And the antecedent to this, of course, makes clear that that is the Jews of the synagogue in Thessalonica, proving that the house of Israel was in general hard soil to plow, but not all of them were rocks and clay. Some of the Lord still remained there, and they were soft to the things of God, and they were reasoned to Christ through the apologetic offered to them 
by the Apostle Paul. The next group of those persuaded by Paul to follow Christ were, also in verse 4, a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So God-fearing Greeks is a broad category, and as a subcategory, you have also Greek women more specifically. Now, these people were in the temple in what was called the court of the Gentiles, which is the outermost court. They were not permitted in any other court besides this. Yet this is where most of the converts to Christ come from in this account. Uh, the innermost court was, of course, the Holy of Holies, and then you work your way out from there to the court for the men and the court for families, and furthest out again, you have the court of the Gentiles. But as is the common pattern with Jesus, those furthest out are brought close, and they are brought close at much higher numbers than those who were in all of the other closer courts. So they go from the outermost court to the very bosom of God as carried there by Christ. And all of these synagogue defectors becoming Christ acceptors, of course, infuriates the powers that be. Note verse 5, But the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace and forming a mob, set the city in an uproar. Now, we are told that jealousy is their motivation. But jealousy as a motivation is actually motivated by many other things. And it depends on the situation. Sometimes we're jealous of people, perhaps, that have more money than us or better relationships somebody who's more well-liked, somebody who is better looking. Here, though, I am guessing that what's driving this is that while Christianity often takes from the world those that nobody else wants to the glory of God, that is not what happened here. What happened here is that a whole lot of money and political influence just left the synagogue at Thessalonica to follow the Lord Jesus instead. Now, with respect to the money, think back to our recent study of Lydia in Philippi. She was a woman of tremendous financial resources. She was a seller of purple, according to the text. We said there that she was probably much more akin to the owner of a textile company than she was a seamstress, given the resources that she had and that she was able to um, offer to the traveling missionaries. But Lydia was a Jewish proselyte or something proselyte adjacent in a town that gave no quarter to Jews, and so there was no synagogue there to support financially at all. Thus, she was not a material contributor to the now apostate Judaism. These very affluent ladies, on the other hand, are Jewish proselytes in a town where Christless Judaism, which, by the way, is an oxymoron, had tremendous sway. And further note their number, which is, we are told, only not a few. What does not a few mean? means many. So, just as an educated guess, I think that this revival at Thessalonica has cost their synagogue in financial terms and to relate it to our day, something equivalent to maybe six to seven figures annually, which is certainly going to hurt their bottom line. Note also, though, that what makes a leading woman isn't just money. It's also leading. These women have significant economic and cultural and political Cloud. It is certainly probable that some of them are self-made or mostly so, but it is pretty well certain that some others of them, perhaps the majority, are the wives of leading Roman politicians in that area. So this is perhaps an application of the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, but in this circumstance, by proxy through wife. Although, as we will soon see, the effects of this transfer of political power 
are not yet sufficient to ensure the fair treatment of these missionaries in this place, nor the Christians besides them. But before we move on to considering more of the Jews' response, we should note that we have quite a bit of insight into the tendencies and most pressing spiritual needs of these Thessalonians due to information that is extant to the book of Acts that is given to us in the epistles written by Paul that bear the name of their hometown. And given the heavy hand of the state as seen in Acts 17, it may not surprise you that the Thessalonian epistles are very much political. It may further not surprise you that that political message, while multifaceted, has at its center Christ is king and not Caesar. Imperial worship, as I mentioned last time, was deeply entrenched into the system in Thessalonica in a way that it was not even elsewhere in Rome, generally. And imperial worship, worship of the emperor, had its own eschatology. And that eschatology was very similar to that of the aforementioned communism. Only instead of adherence to communism, ushering in and preserving a permanent utopia, it would, of course, be Rome as led eternally forth by an endless successor of emperors, all of whom had a divine mandate, and that divine mandate was to preserve and advance the Pax Romana or the Roman peace over the whole world. So the Pax Romana then was not just a present ideal, it was also an eternal promise that from age to age Caesar's Rome would remain and so would the peace that he brought. And thus the Thessalonian epistles are among the most political and eschatological books in the Bible because Paul is responding to this context, which is well framed, I think, by Second Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, if all you had was a Thessalonian context from Acts, I think you'd deduce there that Paul was referring to political leaders when he uh, referenced perverse and evil men from whom he needed rescue, and they as well. Also, though, there is common sense, and that leads to the conclusion that men who have no power can be perverse but cannot so easily put us in need of rescue. Then further, though, we do know for certain that this is a reference to governmental heads and their apparatchiks because the chapter that precedes this speaks of the very political man of lawlessness, a.k.a. Antichrist. And in fact, Paul, near to the open of his first epistle to them, references the very situations that we are observing in Acts right now in our study as well as those that we have just observed. First Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. You yourselves know, brothers, that our entrance to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much struggle. That would be what's happening right now. This context, though, established what was Paul's political message to them? Well, it was essentially that as Dagon did not simply lie down, but God had to put him down and lay him on his face, so it will be with the pantheon of false Greco-Roman gods and the so-called imperial god himself as well. And they all will be by the true king of the universe, who is Christ. And this is apparent in and throughout the two Thessalonian epistles 
But here is a sample from just the second one. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is only fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly in the love of each one of you. All toward one another increases all the more. So that we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure at the hands of state actors. That's my commentary added. Going on in verse 5, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering since it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give rest to you who are afflicted and to us as well at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Again, in context, political rulers. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe, for our witness to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill all your good pleasure for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be magnified, or rather glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, by the way, is why you don't fear him who has the delegated power to destroy your body and death, but rather you fear the one who has the intrinsic and non-contingent power to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. On the reality of this, on the consideration also, is besides being a right cause of terror for God's enemies, one of the greatest means of our perseverance, because it's our great encouragement as Christians, that both justice for our enemies and salvation for us are coming. Because irrespective who's seated on the throne of a given nation, Christ is seated on the throne of the universe. And He is coming again. And this, I think, is the biggest point for the Thessalonians, this encouragement. And you see this also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-24. through God has not appointed us for wrath, we Christians, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but examine all things Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely because Caesar's Pax Romana can't 
Again, that was my additional commentary. And may your spirit and your soul and body be preserved complete without blame. And here again is that emphasis. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. Yes, things are bad. But Jesus is coming back. Yes, your leaders are unjust. But Jesus is coming back. And to bring it back to Acts 17, all of this is why yet more persecution from Satan leaves Paul cast down because he's a human being. And he feels these things, but it does not leave him destroyed. I will say, though, at least this point, Paul's learning to uh, discern when the inevitable is coming, and so he reacts in time to uh, avoid the violent beating and imprisonment that probably would have been granted to him here as well. By way of reminder, though, here is verses 5 and 6 once more, and you'll see that. But the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace and forming a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the assembly, and when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities. So it seemed pretty obvious here that Paul and Silas got hip to what was about to happen and they found somewhere else to be. And as we will see later, they will soon leave whatever hiding place they are in and they will make their departure secretly. But in the meantime, you have a good brother in Christ named Jason who in true Christ-like manner steps up and interposes on their behalf. And Jason was a believing Jew. And the believing part here is obvious. The Jewish part, though, is known by his name, which was a Hellenization or a Greekification. That's not a word. But if that helps you, of the Hebrew, which is Joshua, meaning the Lord saves. A very, very Hebrew name, though rendered in Greek. And Jason here risks much. He'll lose money. He pays the bond for him. Makes him a target in the future of the obviously still very powerful Jews and therefore also of the Romans because the Romans' instinct was to keep the peace which usually led them to side with the party who could give them the least opposition. So Jason would suffer financially from this, reputationally as well. But at this point, there was not yet a credible or known threat to his life. Whereas for Paul and Silas, Exactly how many more beatings and how much more ill treatment can they endure back to back to back before they suffer the kind of damage to their bodies that prevents them from being able to effectively minister, especially in the case of Paul? So Jason offers Satan himself instead of Paul, and Satan takes Jason instead. But then the children of Satan give the worst insult that you could ever give to an actual Christian. They say, again, verse 6 and into verse 7, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. I, I wonder if there was an in, involuntary amen uttered by our brethren when they heard that charge. My imagination gets away from me a little bit with this, but I, I imagine the one looking at the other, you know, speaking of our brethren in the first century, and just being confused, saying something to the effect maybe of, 
You know, the words themselves seem like a compliment, but his affect makes it seem like he's not complimenting me, so I'm a little confused as to how I'm supposed to respond here. I want to say thank you, but I feel like that might just make him more angry. It's a kind of insult that you receive and respond with a, no, don't say that. Although I will give you a point of order on just one issue, and that is that neither Paul nor Silas nor us are really saying that there is another king and his name is Jesus. According to the way the world uses king and the way the Romans used king, we are saying there is only one king and his name is Jesus. But at least in contrast to what we have been seeing, uh, case in point, Philippi, these charges are pretty much just true. And let's break this down. We'll begin with the allegation that they have upset the world. Uh, the first question to answer with this is, what is meant by world? Because very commonly, the world will steal our words from us. Unbelievers will steal our sanctified terms. They'll use uh, our vocabulary but throw out our definitions. And so we're using the same terms but with completely different meanings. And they do this as a subversive technique and often very effectively. Rarely is their definition of a term or concept the same as the biblical definition of that term or concept, but rarely and never, and this is one of those rare instances, I hear as a tour through the biblical concept of world and worldliness, which happens to line up exactly, I think, with the way that they are using world in Acts 17.6, whether they know it or not. Start with James 4.4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Second Timothy 4.10, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. That was Paul speaking. First John 2.15-16, through 16, do not love the things of, uh, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. John eight twenty three, and he, this is Jesus, was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. John seventeen four again, Jesus, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. John eighteen thirty six, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Luke 4, 5 through 8. And he, Satan, led him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this dominion and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall not or you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So then, Christian, is the charge true? Were they and we, by common association with Christ, really here to upset all of that? You better believe it. We are here to turn it over. We are here to do something of spiritual terraforming like you would need to do if you were to go to another planet 
to render it capable of supporting human life. Their system is incompatible with our natures. So we are going to change the atmosphere and the ecosystem which will drive them out and create an increasingly hospitable environment for us in which righteousness thrives as they become us through conversion more and more. You know, when it comes to understanding your enemy, the children of Satan are at a great disadvantage when compared to us. And this is because all of us have been one of them, but none of them have ever been one of us. There is no such thing as a legitimate deconversion because we're all kept by Christ. And because of this, they, I think, are unable to distinguish between us and the so-called politically conservative talking head pundit class. They think that we, like them, will be content to lose more and more ground morally and spiritually so long as we are left our revenue streams which derive from the idolaters who lap up the same broken conservative messianic promises generation after generation. But they do not understand that we are not like them at all. We don't negotiate with the enemies of Christ. We don't compromise and we are not here to share anything with them. We have come to collect the world and nothing less because our Lord has already overcome it. So we don't want the scraps from your table. We're going to take the whole meal. We're going to take the table too. We're going to take the house and the zip code that it's located in. And we're going to leave you with nothing in the end. Situation well known with David and Goliath is illustrative of this. We have five stones, but we'll only need one. And we're going to send it right into the center of your forehead. We're going to kill you. Then we're going to pry your sword loose from your cold, dead hand and use it to cut your own head off with. Then we're going to carry your head to our king and present it to him as a trophy, not of what we have done, but of the glory of his grace, which gave us the strength and the power to collect what he already secured. To gain the victory that he already accomplished. So with respect to that charge, we say guilty, Your Honor, except we don't want to acknowledge you as judge because you're not that either. Rather, you will stand before the judge of the living and the dead who is our Christ. But get the point. Next allegation, though, is that Jason has welcomed them. And that, of course, is also true. He doesn't deny it. But it also testifies to a great truth of our faith, and that is that we, the persecuted church, are willing to associate with we, the persecuted church, even if this association brings more persecution upon us. And remember this, Christian. The next time that somebody suffers for righteousness and some Christian celebrity distances himself for the sake of fake unity and false humility, Paul and Silas were physically broken when they got to Jason. And for Christ's sake, he took them in. And when the situation got too hot, he hid them. And as we will see next week in verse 10, he sends them away to safety. Now, I have come to hate the capitulation of the formerly righteous to the wicked. But I really hate it when they join with the wicked in slandering and persecuting the righteous too. When Herod tried to execute Peter, they hid him. 
When the Damascus Jews tried to kill Paul, the believers helped him escape in a basket. When they murdered our Lord, not two months later, the apostles stood up in front of the entire nation of Israel and called all of them to repentance for having murdered our Lord, publicly identifying themselves with the Lord Jesus in a scenario which was uh, very much a threat to their lives. So understand that when a professing believer forsakes a believer who's suffering for Christ's sake, they're not just forsaking that believer, they are forsaking Christ himself. Because it was the Spirit of Christ in that believer that caused him to stand for Christ in a way that has brought upon him suffering. Let judgment begin in the house of God, but let those who are judged wickedly for being members of God's household always find support and rest and fellowship here. Body of Christ is to be like Quasimodo's Notre Dame Cathedral. It is a place of sanctuary for the people of God. But we don't have to cry sanctuary. We have that common faith, and that is the basis of our acceptance of one another and provision for. And that may mean at a point very soon in the future in this country that you risk your own personal well-being on account of somebody else who's suffering for Christ's sake and that you risk the members of your household's well-being too. But we are people of faith. And we do not turn, especially those who are suffering for Christ's name, away. We take them in. And we pay the fine like Jason did if need be, and we pay a greater price if need be too. Finally, though, there is that last allegation, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And with the exception to the aforementioned issue with another king, this is, of course, also true. Again, imperial worship was absolutely dominant in Thessalonica in a way that it was not elsewhere in Rome. So rejecting this to affirm that Christ is the God-king and not Caesar is the new covenant keeping of the first commandment that I reminded you of at the beginning of this sermon, Exodus 20, verses 2 through 3. Again, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, including Caesar, or including the equivalent to Caesar in any and all civilizations and nations. By the way, when Caesar wants to find good citizens, he'll find none better than us. The driving maxim of the Christian faith, or at least one of them, is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We're going to care for and mind our fellow citizens in a way that no other people group will. I can't imagine a better citizenry than people who have been redeemed. But when Caesar wants worshipers of the state, when he wants those who worship him, he will find none of those among us. And this has always been true. It was true with Moses, with Pharaoh, true of the people of God who were led out of Pharaoh's Egypt. It's true with Nathan, with David, and theocratic Israel, reminding David that he bore the covenant of God, but he was not God himself and could not transgress the commands of God any way that he wanted. It's true with John the Baptist, with Herod. It's true with Jesus, with the Sanhedrin. 
Jesus with Pilate, Peter with the Sanhedrin, Paul with absolutely everyone, everywhere. True with Polycarp and his declaration of Jesus is Lord in contradiction to the Roman creed of Caesar is Lord in the second century. And this has remained true. In fact, there's an account of this kind of obedience in a situation involving Thessalonica about four centuries in advance of where we are now. And um, it was dealt with by a brother in Christ by the name of Ambrose, if you've heard that name from church history. There was an emperor in that day by the name of Theodosius, and there was a riot in the town of Thessalonica, a rebellion against him and against his rule. And so, according to history, I'm not a, an expert in these things, but from what I understand, Theodosius was right to respond to it militarily. However, he didn't just put down the rioters. He slaughtered 7,000 men, women, and children. And so Ambrose wrote a letter to him, and I'd encourage you to look this up and read it because it's, it's wonderful. It shows exactly the kind of humility that you would want to show in the face of a God-appointed ruler while still very strongly calling him to repentance. And he did at the risk of his own life because the emperor had the authority to do that. And you know what Theodosius did? He repented. Which in that instance, as led by Ambrose, meant that he stood outside of the church and begged for the prayers of all those entering, begged for the prayers of his own citizens. We do not worship the state. We are those who call the state to true worship of their rightful king in every age, in every generation. So hold the line, Christian, and help those hold it who stand next to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you For the example of our brethren, we thank you for the clarity that this example brings to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a king like no other, king of kings, Lord of lords, and that every knee will bow to you and every tongue confess that you are Lord. We praise you and we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.